0: This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2012. Today we'll be speaking with Professor Matthew Sutton, a Department of History at Washington State University, who has written a most interesting article that it will appear in the March 2012 issue of the Journal of American History, Entitled, Was FDR the Antichrist? The Birth of Fundamentalist Anti Liberalism in a Global Age. Matt, thanks for taking the time to do this with us. Thank you, Ed. Well, let me start with uh, a statement you make very early in the article, Matt, and just let you talk about this some. For the faithful living in the 1930s, to support Roosevelt was to support the coming Antichrist. Uh, tell us uh, about about that.
1: Sure. Yeah, that statement in many ways sort of um, embodies what the article's about. And what I discovered in my research was that there was this moment in you know the not so distant American past in which conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, began to really think about and rethink their positions in the modern world. And one of the things that was driving this was their interest in foreign affairs and what was happening abroad, as well as what was happening with crises at home. And ultimately, they came to the conclusion that the rise of the Antichrist was imminent. They were possibly the last generation, or at least one of the last generations, who would soon experience the rapture, which is when all Christians will disappear off the face of the earth. And then, um, those who are left behind will witness the rise of the Antichrist, who will take power and oversee 70, a seven-year period of tribulation on earth, which will then culminate on, the once again, the return of Christ, who will then battle the Antichrist at Armageddon, which is a little place, a little place in the Middle East. So in the 1930s, for a lot of different reasons, conservative Christians began to believe that they may be that generation, that the, the coming of Christ and the rise of the Antichrist was imminent. And so... What they determined was that there were a number of signs indicating that history was moving to this great culmination. And one of the most important of those signs was the move towards totalitarian governments, was the consolidation of political power into the state. And so, you know, while many Americans looked at Mussolini and Hitler and and what was happening abroad – as efforts of you know, major problems for conservative Christians, they also saw what Roosevelt was doing in that same context. And so they saw the rise of the New Deal, the rise of the liberal state, the rise of FDR as precursors, as indicators that the rise of the Antichrist was imminent.
0: This analysis of the origins of fundamentalist anti-liberalism in the 1930s, you write, is significant for several reasons. Uh, that it forces us to rethink the politics of American fundamentalism, and its relationship to political conservatism. And then you also make uh, a very significant point that uh, for too long historians have treated fundamentalism in the United States as a native species nourished by local and regional concerns without proper attention to the ways in which the movement grew and evolved in response to international events. Uh, You mentioned a little bit about this already, but talk about those two very important uh, structural parts of your piece.
1: As you all well know, there's been an explosion of work on modern conservatism, and it's it's just a great and thriving field, and there's there's many, many, many wonderful books out. Uh, but most of those books and most of those works really look to the post-World War II period, and, and there are increasing numbers of books that are going back into the 1910s and 20s and 30s, but but most of the work still looks at the post-war period, and, and for good reason. But one of the questions that I wanted to answer was how... Evangelicals began to align with political conservatism, and what I found was that the where this began to happen was in the 1930s. That it wasn't with the rise of Billy Graham in the 40s and 50s. It wasn't with Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, or you know even later than that with Pat Robertson and the Christian Coalition. That it was in the 1930s, fundamentalists began laying out a religious ideology that would help them build alliances with conservatism. And of course, in the 1930s, this wasn't a partisan issue. The Republican Party hadn't become the party of conservatism in, in the way that it becomes in the post-war period. But it was a, an issue of conservative versus liberal, and in that sense, conservative Christians were, were becoming political conservatives. I'll go on to your second question, which is the international context. That's been one of the most fun things about this project. Um, of course, this is nothing new. Historians are working harder and harder and harder to put American history in a global context. And so in many ways, that literature is what drove my my rethinking and my reconceptualizing evangelicalism as more of a global phenomenon, which it, of course, certainly is. Um, but in particular, with this article, what I began to look at was not so much evangelicals and their influence on the rest of the globe, but on the globe's influence on American evangelicals. And that is that in the literature, most historians and scholars have treated fundamentalists as I say in Articles of Native Species, is a movement that was responding to or reacting to local concerns, day-to-day concerns, concerns at the grassroots level, whether it was their local schools or what was happening in their local movie theater or those kinds of issues. But what I found, and I think um, what, I, what historians of American evangelicalism are realizing is that they are one of the most globally attuned religious groups, or really groups of any kind in the United States. that evangelicals were avid readers of the newspapers, avid readers of the of daily events. And in many ways, this was driven by their interest in prophecy, their interest in the the second coming of Christ. And so, for instance, they were watching Mussolini from the mid-20s before many Americans recognized what a threat he would become. And they were very well aware of Hitler and the, the dangers that he represented just really shortly after he published Mein Kampf, even before he took power in Germany. I mean, as soon as he did take power in Germany, evangelicals were one of the first groups to publicize his persecution of the Jews. And so again, they were were very much aware of day-to-day events happening abroad, and that was helping them create the movement that that ultimately became so important
0: to 20th century American history. And thank you, Matt. There were some signposts that I don't think many uh, folks would think about as being symbolically important as we think about what evangelicals are paying attention to. I was fascinated in your comment about how important Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia was. Could you say a little about that?
1: Sure, yeah. Mussolini um, is a fun figure for me to to follow in this, in this work because one of the prophecies, one of the predictions that fundamentalists had laid out for the end times, and this began in the 1870s and 1880s, so well before Mussolini took power, was that the Antichrist would ultimately take power in a restored Roman Empire, and that he would rebuild Rome in the same way to fulfill essentially the bounds of the old Roman Empire. And so as evangelicals then began to see Italy moving into a more prominent place in world affairs, and then they saw the rise of fascism, and then and the ascension of Mussolini, they became convinced that Mussolini was was the guy, that Mussolini may very well be the Antichrist. And so, in fact, over and over again, all of the fundamentalist magazines deal with this question. Um, lay people are writing their pastors questions, asking them to, to talk about whether or not Mussolini is the Antichrist. And, and so they're having to respond to this. And so, once Mussolini actually invades Ethiopia, fundamentalists read this as an expansion of the Roman Empire, as a reconstitution of a, of a globally-minded Roman Empire, and that further affirms their conviction that they're living in the end times, and that Antichrist is on the horizon, which then again comes back to their domestic politics, which makes them think that ultimately Roosevelt is the means by which the United States is going to line up behind the Antichrist.
0: Thank you. And Matt, you write that by using both published materials and private sources, such as letters and diaries— you demonstrated that there was no difference between the apocalyptic political rhetoric that fundamentalists used in public and the beliefs and ideas they expressed in private uh, why why is this uh, significant do you think to tell readers about in the journal
1: One of the fun things about this project um, is the the research that it's allowed me to do, and and I've set out with the goal of making this one of the most extensively, if not the most extensively archivally research book on fundamentalism written today. And so what that's done is that's given me access to both the letters of lay people, to the private diaries of prominent ministers, as well as to more obvious, more traditional sources like published sermons and books and booklets. And so um, what i found is that the public rhetoric, this public apocalyptic rhetoric, this sense that the United States was on the wrong path, that FDR was moving the U.S. in the wrong direction, that there was this great um, great cataclysm coming just around the corner. That there wasn't just something that prominent fundamentalist ministers used to galvanize um, their support or to, you know, increase their ties or to get attention, but this was actually something they truly believed. And so I spent a lot of time at archives ranging from Bob Jones University in the south to um, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in the northeast, to Biola University in Los Angeles, to Wheaton College just outside of Chicago, to um, the Southern Baptist Archives in Nashville and to all kinds of archives in between places like the Roosevelt Presidential Library and, and Special Collections in, in various universities. And what I found was that there was this extensive network of fundamentalist leaders who were writing letters back and forth and who were even more bold in their proclamations about the coming apocalypse and about the nearness of Armageddon than they were publicly. That this was something they really, truly believed and they were wrestling with each other and writing each other and debating the nuances of prophecy and the nuances of biblical interpretation and how those lined up with what was happening in the United States, politically and socially, and then also what was happening globally. And so there really was no distinction between the public representation of this apocalyptic fundamentalism and what these guys truly believed as they were in correspondence with each other.
0: And you talked a good bit in the piece about how premillennialism, the idea that the world is, is getting worse and worse and worse and the emphasis should be on individual salvation, did not lead to political quiescence at all, but but quite the opposite. Can you talk some about uh, that seeming contradiction that rather than lead to a passivity, just waiting for the end times to come, that premillennialism led, in fact, to a kind of fevered and principled political activity?
1: Sure, yeah. This is one of the hardest things to explain, and this is what evokes the most criticism from people who read my work, not of my work, but of fundamentalism as a whole, which is the seeming incongruity. And, and this is something that has characterized evangelicalism from the 1870s all the way up to the present. Um, and we see it expressed in, you know, in Jerry Farwell's work and Billy Graham's work, but also in these fundamentalists who I study from the 1930s. And that is, if you believe the world is going to end at any moment, why would you try to engage in political activism? Why would you try to fight the Antichrist? Wouldn't you be more... Um, willing or more likely to actually try to usher in the end times to try to make it happen, to accelerate the, the end of events. Well, evangelicals explain it this way. And again, this is a consistent explanation they've had for the last hundred years, which is that they want to believe, or they do believe, that Christ might come today, that he may come at any moment, but they want to live as if he's not going to come for another thousand years. And so the way they do this is they build it on a Jesus' parable of the talents in which Jesus called, um, according to Jesus, this king calls his followers and them with his money while he goes off to the faraway country. When he comes back, those who had invested this money and made more out of it were rewarded, while those who buried it out of fear of losing it were punished. And so what Fundamentalists do is they read this parable of telling Christians that they need to use their talents. They shouldn't bury their talents. They need to invest wisely and they need to do what they can to improve the kingdom, knowing that ultimately the king is going to come back and they're going to have to answer to him. And so it is a paradox, it is a contradiction, but nevertheless, it's one that, that fundamentalists have been comfortable with for, for a long time. And it also makes sense on a practical level. It's hard to build uh, a strong movement if what you're preaching is apathy and indifference and inevitability. Um, and so the idea that both Jesus is coming back at any moment, but that we can help lead, uh, lead a revival in the short term, is something that motivates people to action, motivates them to work.
0: And certainly the events of the late 30s and, and into the 40s uh, it, it were fairly easy, <laughs> not just for evangelicals, to fit into a, a, a pretty dark view of the world. Correct.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what makes me um, sympathetic to my subjects, especially the nineteen thirties generation. That as I'm looking at, at fundamentalism from the eighteen seventies to the present, that's the generation that that really seemed to almost get it right. I mean, the things that they had been expecting, the things they had been predicting really all seemed to come together with, you know, the rise of a powerful state in the US, with fascism abroad. Um, with the economic, global economic turmoil, I mean they, they really did seem to be living on the verge of Armageddon in all kinds of ways
0: Now, Matt, when you are out offering lectures on this to public audiences, and i can 't imagine that someone at some point doesn't stand up and say, "How in the world could these people possibly compare f d r to the Antichrist and fold him into the same demonic mix with Hitler?" and Mussolini, and how in the world could they look at uh, New Deal programs designed to uh, empower ordinary people? Uh, how, how do you respond to uh, that that kind of uh, uh, shock when, when people are right. listening to you?
1: Right. No, it's a great question. It's certainly one I've had. It's also one that comes up in the classroom. Um, and I, I try to bring people back to the world of 1932, 3334 34, and then really you 1941-42, know, and that is to remind them how unique FDR is in American history. And I started there with just the U.S. context, which is that FDR comes into office with an unprecedented majority. He has the absolute control of Congress. They'll do, especially early in his, his tenure, they'll do almost anything he wants. So he's got the executive branch locked up. He has a legislative branch locked up. And then in 1937, of course, he moved to pack the Supreme Court, which was essentially to gain control of the judiciary. So here's a guy who's looking like he's going to take over all three branches of government, who then also defies precedent by running for an unprecedented third term and then an unprecedented fourth term, which had never been done in American history before. And so this further reifies this sense that the FDR is consolidating power in ways that no other American president has ever done before. So then when you just look at that alone in what makes FDR unique, and then add to the context of miscellaneous Hitler and Stalin in their unprecedented power grabs, I think for Americans who are predisposed to not like Roosevelt anyway, it was easy to make the link between fascism abroad and fascism at home. And certainly for those who are sympathetic to FDR and what he was trying to do, they saw, you know, worlds and worlds of difference between what was happening in the United States and what was happening abroad. Um, But for those who already didn't like it, it was, it was easy
0: to make this move. And were, we're fundamentalists, Matt, making uh, detailed uh, critiques of specific New Deal policy and then linking it to this uh, larger darkness that they saw? Or uh, was it more a kind of general sense that the modern state was participating in this, in this uh, totalitarian worldview?
1: Well, right. you know, it was really both. Um, the vast majority was more of a general critique of the growing liberal state and the consolidation of power in federal hands and the federal government. But also, New Deal programs came under criticism, but many of the criticisms of those were similar to just generic, conservative criticisms of the New Deal. They weren't necessarily linked to theology or to religion. Um, so the AAA, the American Agricultural Act, came under heavy fire from fundamentalists, but it came under the same criticisms from many other Americans. Um, one of the ones that did take on a particularly powerful theological critique was the National Recovery Administration, the NRA. Uh, Roosevelt established this program to try to help um, the economy, to help get businesses all on the same page. In in doing that, businesses that participated in the NRA um, used a symbol, the Blue Eagle, to indicate that they were participating in the program. Well, one of the things that the Book of Revelation teaches is that that in the last days, the Antichrist will force all of his people, um, all of his subjects, to take on what's called the Mark of the Beast. And this has often been interpreted as the 666 but theologians have debated what this mark of the beast actually is. And so in the 1930s, a lot of fundamentalists wondered if—and this is actually more lay people than leaders— wondered if the Blue Eagle was the mark of the beast. The fact that businesses, private businesses, were being forced or being asked to display this mark indicated— the coming rise of the Antichrist and over the economic domain. Now, actually, fundamentalist leaders disagree. They said the legal is not the mark of the beast, and few of them actually participated in the IRA, but they all agreed there was a precursor, that it was setting the stage that it was making it easier for when the Antichrist does ultimately take power for him to control the economy.
0: And after Pearl Harbor, does this image of FDR and the growing modern state as uh, the Antichrist stay fairly stable, or are there fault lines that... Begin to develop as the U.S. goes to war and Americans uh, are are called upon to to make blood sacrifice.
1: Right, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, Fault lines do begin developing to the extent that so much of the prophecy, so much of what fundamentalists expected, was wrong. Once the United States allies with the Soviet Union, this is a major problem for fundamentalists because they believed that the Soviet Union was this great northern confederacy predicted in the book of Ezekiel. And this is very obscure biblical stuff. But they had these very complicated readings of Old Testament books like Ezekiel and Daniel, which laid out the rise of certain events. And so on the one hand, the Soviet Union becoming our ally is a problem for them. Mm because that that doesn't line up with the prophecy they expected. The fall of Mussolini becomes a second problem, because they were sure that he was ultimately going to be the victor of World War II. Once he becomes a a non-player in the midst of the war, they suddenly realize they have to rethink it. And so all this leads to sort of a muting of their hard millennial thinking and their hard apocalyptic thinking. And for the most part, they do join the war effort. They do become patriotic supporters of the war. They do rally behind Roosevelt. but they never let go of their criticism of the New Deal state. And so that's clear in the formation of groups like the National Association of Evangelicals, which found, begins in the early 1940s, which becomes a major evangelical political lobby all the way to this day. Um, but at its foundation, there are concerns about Roosevelt. But but nevertheless, um, you're exactly right. Once, once the war begins and once the geopolitical stage changes as rapidly as it does, it forces fundamentalists really to embrace some humility and to realize that they got it wrong. And, and many of them, fortunately, admit this, a few don't.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Matt. Tell us uh, some about how you got into this fascinating project and how your JH piece fits into this uh, larger book project that you're working on that will be coming out from Harvard very soon, please.
1: Sure. Yeah, the, the question that drove this was really kind of thinking both to the present and then also thinking earlier than the period I study backwards. And so in the present, I, I've always understood and I've easily understood why religious conservatives line up with the Republican Party on social issues, gay marriage, abortion, et cetera, et cetera. What I didn't understand and what, what I was curious about was why evangelicals lined up with anti-statism of the Republican Party, why they were opposed to the federal government, why they were opposed to something like you know, the Obama health care plan. And so in trying to answer that question, that drove me to look back to find uh, essentially the origins of fundamentalist anti statism, and that's where I, I came to the 1930s as this pivotal moment. The other question that drove this, looking back further, was thinking about the great evangelical reform movements of the 19th century, things like abolition of slavery, women's rights, these movements that evangelicals were in many ways at the forefront of. And yet, when we think of evangelicalism in the 20th century, they're reactionary, they're conservative, they're really on the wrong side of all the great political and social divides. And so I also wanted to understand that. And so for me to to answer these questions, the the key is in the shift from the post-millennialism of the 19th century, this evangelical sense that Christians can actually usher in the kingdom of God here on Earth, to the move to the premillennialism of the 20th century, which is the conviction that, in fact, you can't usher in the kingdom of God, that the only thing that's going to happen is we're going to end up in this great apocalypse with the rise of the Antichrist, and that the kingdom of God will only be established after that, under the millennial reign of of Christ, after the Battle of Armageddon. And so this this shift from believing you can build the kingdom of God on Earth to believing that you cannot, I think, has fundamentally altered fundamentalist political and social sensitivities. Um, And so that was that was the, the the questions I was asking, and that was the research that ensued. And so, the 1930s became one major slice, one turning point in this larger project. So, so the the larger book um, will hopefully be out in fall of 2013. I'm certainly working towards that end. And what it is 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 a major cultural history of American fundamentalism from the 1870s to the 1950s in terms of the hard archival research, although I'll have a chapter or two that brings the story to the present. And so this looks at politics, but it also looks at um, evangelical social issues and fundamental social issues. It looks at issues of women's rights, of civil rights. It looks at fundamentalist views of the economy. And, of course, all of this is put into the global context that I try to put in the JH article.
0: And the... Book, if I'm remembering correctly, Matt is entitled "American Evangelicals and the Politics of Apocalypse." Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's that's the working title, which which may stick, it may not, but yeah, that's that's what it is. It's it's about politics, but politics in its broadest
0: definition. Yeah, can you say something? Uh, uh, the term uh, uh, apocalypse, the apocalyptic, uh, appears in the article so much. I mean, it's such an important part of uh, of of what you do. Um, but beyond the, the politics of apocalypse or political apocalyptic, have you, have you gained a sense that an apocalyptic way of looking at the world is almost like a sense of innocence, kind of in American genes. I'm thinking of, of you know, folks who look at the way Americans look at the environmental crisis or a crisis of crime, uh. Uh, Or these kinds of things that there's a kind of an apocalyptic uh, reflex in in how we interpret what's going on in, in the world. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly
0: right. And part of what
1: probably fueled my interest in this topic was my, my first book on Amy Semple McPherson when I was studying her and, and really trying to embed her. She was a revivalist in the 1920s and 30s in Los Angeles. But one of the things I was trying to do in that book was um, was really embed her in the Los Angeles context and just reading book after book after book about this apocalyptic sense of, of L.A. and of the West and of you know Hollywood creating these epic dramas that play on apocalyptic themes that Americans certainly seem to have this apocalyptic sensibility and, uh, and a part of it I think grew out of the Cold War. And that's another fun part and I I say fun in a in an ironic sense. Fun for me as a story, and it's not fun for real people in real life. But one of the funnest parts of the the, the latter chapters of the book I'm working on was, you know, the rise of the Cold War, the development of atomic bombs. And suddenly evangelicals and fundamentalists who had been saying for generations that the world could end at any moment now actually had proof that the world could end at any moment, which was through atomic or nuclear destruction. And so suddenly all Americans, not just these conservative Christians, believed that they were possibly living at the end of time, that, that at any moment things could absolutely change, you know, just on a dime. And certainly in recent years, the environmental crisis has fueled that. Um, Americans' sense of um, unease about their place in the world, as they as America is you know is losing its its place of dominance, things like the war on terror, so-called war on terror, all these things are are fueling Americans' apocalyptic sensibilities. So I think fundamentalists are able to both play on and contribute to that.
0: It's in bad taste, I think, Matt, to ask an author who's just finishing a book uh, what's coming next because we don't work on an assembly line, but. You, you work on such interesting projects, have you given a thought to uh where this project will will take you down the road
1: yeah i've uh you know i've had a few different ideas which my mentors and editors and others have, have sort of shot down, but I finally got one that that at least they endure patiently, so this may be the one i 'll stick with, which is to do something that um really is building on a lot of other work but right, that looks at the use of and the employment of religion in american war basically from the spanish-american war to the war on terror um, and looking at the ways in which expectations, scholars and academics, and really public intellectuals' expectations that America would become a more secular nation over the course of the 20th century have not happened. And to try to understand that, I think we have to go back to the way that the American government and American leaders have used religion to support America's war effort. And so we see that again, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Cold War, Vietnam, and then the War on Terror. Um, So I'm, I'm at least playing with ideas of looking at this relationship between kind of the public deployment of religion and American military interventions abroad.
0: That's a wonderful idea, Matt. I'm, I'm putting in an early uh, order on Amazon as we speak. <laughs> well, so, it. Uh, and September 25th of last year, you wrote a, an op-ed in the New York Times, Why the Antichrist Matters in Politics, uh, received a lot of attention. Tell listeners about the op-ed and some of the response to it.
1: Sure. This, this really grew out of the JAH article in the larger book project, which was that I was thinking about the ways in which the apocalyptic concerns about Roosevelt were playing out in the 2011-2012 uh, Republican primaries in the ways in which this fundamentalist anti liberalism was was shaping anti Obama sentiments and sentimentalities. So um so at that point when I published the article, that was at the height of Rick Perry's influence and of course he's now long gone from from the serious political stage. But I was looking at the ways in which conservative Christians were galvanized behind particular political leaders and at the same time how those leaders were playing on conservative Christian sensibilities about their anti statism. So so anyway, all of those came together um, one of the things, as a historian, I try to do is is to write, you know, good, solidly credible stuff, like I do for the JAH, but to also make my work my work accessible to the public and to make it relevant to the public. Um, and so I tried to do that with this with this article. And so it it start, sparked a media sensation, partly because the article appeared on a Monday morning, and that afternoon I taped. Um, the Lawrence Donald show about the article, and then that evening a heckler at an Obama fundraiser stood up and yelled, you are the Antichrist at Barack Obama. And so that then just made this story a a huge issue. It was the most emailed story of the the day of the New York Times and one of the most prominent ones in the the week and the month. And it led to additional media appearances. I was on NPR and and doing interviews with journalists just out every day for the next week and a half. And so I'm, I'm glad that the story has died and I've gotten back to work, but it was it was quite a fun fun reaction. It was fun to make you know, make the research I'm doing on the 1930s is relevant to the current political cycle.
0: Indeed. Well Matt, thank you so much for your wonderful piece. We are we are so pleased to be able to publish it. And good luck in, in your work and thanks again for taking the time to do the podcast. Thank you, Ed. This has been a lot of fun. We've been speaking with Professor Matthew Sutton on the Department of History of Washington State University, whose article was FDR the Antichrist. The Birth of Fundamentalist Anti-Liberalism in a Global Age will appear in the Journal of American History, March 2012 edition. The Organization of American Historians holds several events each year for researchers and educators in American history. To learn more about the OAH Annual Meeting, the OAH Community College Workshop, and other ways to connect with researchers and educators, visit the OAH website at www.oah.org meetings. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication in the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you'll receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in June for our next episode. If you have any questions, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.